So even as, even as we confess our sin and we're assured that His grace is sufficient, it's important for us to continue to sing, not only are we sinners, but beneath the cross of Jesus, we have salvation. Take your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 38. Exodus chapter 38, it looks like we have two more weeks after today in our study of the book of Exodus, which has taken us about 13 months by the time that we're done. For those of you who have been here, I hope that, uh, I hope that it's blessed your spiritual life and your pursuit of Christ the way that it has mine. Exodus chapter 38, the word of the Lord in verse 1. He made the altar of burnt offerings of acacia wood, five cubits in its length, five cubits in its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it in the four corners. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pots. He made all its utensils of bronze. He made all the altar, uh, and he made for the altar a grating. A network of bronze under its ledge extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders of the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the side of the altar to carry it with them. And he made it hollow with boards. He made a basin of bronze and its stand of bronze for the mirrors and the Ministering of women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he made the court for the south side and hanging the court were fine twined linens, a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and the fillets were silver. And for the north side there were hangings of a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars, their twenty bases were of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of 50 cubits. Their ten pillars, their ten bases, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the front to the east, 50 cubits. And the hangings for one side of the gate were 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. And so for the other side. On both sides of the gate of the court were hanging of 15 cubits. There are three pillars, there are three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twined linen, and the bases of the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks and the pillars of the fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals was also of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver. And the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns of fine twined linen. It was 20 cubits long, 5 cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hanging of the court. And their pillars were four in number, their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals and the fillets of silver. All the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court all around were of bronze. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, 
made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him, Ahiliab, the son of Ahisamech, the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. All the gold that was used for the work and all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from all those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca, a head, that is half a shekel, by the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone who was listed in the record from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. The 100 tabernacles of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. A hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent, a base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze was offering for 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases of the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar, the bronze grating, for it and all the utensils of the altar. The bases around the court, the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle, and all the pegs around the court. This is the record of God's work in completing his tabernacle. We pray that he adds his blessing to its reading. You can be seated, and children, you can be dismissed to children's church this morning. If your children are headed off to children's church uh, at the conclusion of the service, please go and pick them up down this hallway on my right and your left. God, in this chapter, is revealing to us that he makes the way of mercy possible. How will sinners such as ourselves arrive at the mercy seat of God? Last week, Pastor Will did, I I think, an extraordinary job, especially as he emphasized the Ark of the Covenant and the significance of the mercy seat. The blood that had to be spilled on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of sin, for the atonement of the people. The question for us today as we move into chapter 38 is how do we get from where we are now to the place of God's mercy? And that's chapter 38. I've titled this sermon, Making the Way for Mercy. What we see is going from outside the tent to the mercy seat, to the Ark of the Covenant, to the Holy of Holies. And you remember last week, Pastor Will took the paragraph in chapter 37 and he moved them so that you finished with the emphasis being on the Ark of the Covenant itself. I I plan to do that same thing today. I'm going to take the chapter we just read and I'm going to flip it around so the last thing we study is what I think to be the most important thing, and it's the first thing that we just read. So just trying to keep an emphasis on these sort of bookends, from the altar to the Ark of the Covenant. Without the altar for sacrifice, there is no blood and atonement for sin. What we have here in front of us is a context 
that looks like this. It starts in chapter 37, as Pastor Will covered last week. The ark, chapter 37, the first nine verses. A table for the the showbread, chapter 37, verse 10 through 16. The lampstand, signifying the, the presence of God with his people in chapter 37, 17 through 24. The altar of incense, signifying the worship and the prayer of the people being a sweet aroma to God. The altar of burnt offering, that's what I'm going to finish with today in verses 1 through 7. A quick note to a bronze basin in verse 8. And then I'm going to start today with considering this court and its materials in verses 9 through 20. So, in flipping this around, would you look with me, please, at verse 21. We find here, first of all, the way that I've noted this first point of emphasis is materials made for the tabernacle. Now, here's what I want to say. You'll notice that as we start studying this, the emphasis is going to be on three precious metals, gold, silver, and bronze. There's more material, but the emphasis is on those Three incorruptible, precious metals. And when I say this main point, materials made for the tabernacle, I want you to understand that those materials existed prior to the tabernacle. There was no chemistry that was being done to make gold at the tabernacle. All they were doing is refining and shaping the gold, tooling the gold and silver and bronze. It had been made much before the tabernacle. And not only made, but it had been provided to them by God for such a purpose as this. The Israelites did not just come up with a bit of gold and silver and bronze here or there. They gave a huge amount of precious metal for the construction of the tabernacle. The statement in verse 21, these are the amounts of the materials used, is just referring to the metal. And it says they were recorded at the commandments of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So here we see Moses carefully taking account for what would be used. Good accounting practices, good stewardship practice. Everything that God had provided for them should be kept clear, record of. So it's no surprise, we've seen this name three times before this one, that Bezalel and Ahiliab play an important role in working the, or managing the project for the tabernacle. Moses relayed to them a careful inventory. He says, okay, this is how much gold, this is how much silver, and this is how much bronze. Sometimes, when we read together a chapter like 38, it can be hard to keep it straight, right? I mean, I'm not the only one, right? You read that, and you're like, okay, fillets and coverings, and where, what are we doing? What are we talking about? Do we get a Ford Mustang when this is done? I don't know where this is going, right? And so we're, 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 we're struggling to picture this. Let me help you picture something that is worth noting. It's the amount of gold and silver and bronze that is given. 29 talents and 730 shekels of gold would be just over two tons of gold. One ton, 2,000 pounds of gold. Just over 2,000 pounds of gold. The silver, 100 talents plus 1,775 shekels. 
That's 7,500 pounds of silver. Here we learn where the silver came from. The people had been numbered, everyone over 20. In total number, 603,550 men. Now, people other than me took time to do all the math. And you remember I've told you at least three times that God invites the people to give a free will offering. And we weren't sure how exactly the free will offering had gone. According to the census and the amount of silver that's given, everyone participated. In addition to the silver, 70 talents plus 2,400 shekels of bronze. That's over 5,000 pounds of bronze. Now, I don't know what's more amazing. That people gave that much to a project? I don't think there's been any church building project that's ever raised that much money. I don't know if that's what's more amazing. Or I don't know if what's more amazing is that that's what they got when they left Egypt. They brought it with them, minus what they used for the golden calf. Let's not talk about that. Or, if what's more amazing is that when God spoke through His Word, Jesus Christ, creation into existence, they said, oh, and the precious metals, make those. Those are going to be used in the construction of my tabernacle and my temple. And so even in the preparation of these particular precious metals, even in getting them to the Israelites through Egypt, God is making the way of mercy available. Now, one question does remain. Why did Moses just highlight the metals? He doesn't tell us how much acacia wood or how much scarlet linen. He doesn't, doesn't give us a quantity. There's no inventory of some things, but other things there, there is this detailed inventory. If I might suggest two reasons why that would be helpful. One is, it is the most costly ingredient in the construction. The large amount of donation, the large significance of the monetary donation, signifies something about the people, doesn't it? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So I think telling us about the most valuable things they gave does help us see that at this moment, these people's hearts are joyfully obedient to their God. These three metals are significant because they are incorruptible and they are valuable. They're splendid metals. The proximity to the ark and the way that there is nothing that is touching the ground that isn't covered in precious metals, the fact that the silver and gold are so significant, the interior of the tabernacle just lined everywhere, ornate and beautiful and magnificent. This, this matters in our understanding of God building a place that's going to represent His presence. It says something about quality, doesn't it? If I could just say pastorally, 
I wonder if we think of God's work in terms of quality or if we think primarily in terms of quantity. So so let me just use Exodus to make my point. God didn't say, all right, I'm going to signify my presence with the people. I want you to build uh, 3,000 tents. Well, what do you want to be like? Well, whatever. There's 3,000 tents. Maybe, Maybe make them all blue so people will know it's God's dwelling not other people. Just make them blue. Okay. And they can just be whatever. Yeah, dirt floors, wood. Don't worry about the precious metals. Just 300 tents. Did I say 300 before? 3,000? Okay. Yeah. It's hard when my imagination is, you know, running amok. Okay. Make 3,000 tents. Quantity. Just make a bunch. I don't really care much about the quality of them. That's not what God says, is it? I want you to see that that's not unusual with God. Whether it's the garden, whether it's the tabernacle, whether it's the temple, or whether it's us. I wonder if we would say, as we learn something about God from the ornate design and attention to detail, that the temple that will house the Spirit of God, the quality of it matters, not just the quantity. And what I'm saying in that is, church, do we have the value of Christ's likeness? Or do we only have a value of eternal life? I wonder if we, 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 we are content to say, we need to get as many people into confession as possible. We just don't have time to worry about the way they operate. And I I think that we can take at least one clue from the details of the tabernacle and the temple that God cares deeply about what will signify His presence. And if in this new covenant era, that's us, that's the quality of our transformation, our heart, that's our maturing into the fullness of Christ, then quality matters. And so I hope that you will treasure not just helping folks escape hell, but I hope as a community we will say we also greatly value the transformation through sanctification into the image and likeness of Christ. That we who were first to believe, this is from 1 Corinthians, that we who were first to believe might be to the praise of His glory. In other words, how we Christian matters, not just that we Christian. Now, these precious metals are all created by God. They're provided for the people by God back in Egypt, which is amazing. They're carrying tons of precious metals on them. And then when God says, now, give as you want, this is what they give. However, I'm not... I'm not inclined to think that chapter 38 is for the church to say, look how pretty that was. It was pretty. All right, let's go home and remember how pretty it is. It's shiny. I don't, I don't think that's the point at all, is it? Instead, I think God is showing that He makes the way for sinners to go to His mercy seat. So the significance of the tabernacle is not the ornate beauty, it is its function. I prayed this a moment ago, 
And I was thinking about it this week from Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus says that his people ought to be more creative in the way they use corrupt money. In other words, unrighteous, those things that are fleeting and passing away. We ought to be more creative in the way we use that money for eternal things. So at its best, this gold gets its worth because of how it's used here, not because gold is precious. It becomes truly valuable as it is laid up to the Lord in the tabernacle. That's a good perspective. Whatever you have. And maybe you think it's not an impressive amount. But use it to the praise of His glory. And it's of everlasting worth. So the first is the materials that God had given them to make the way. Second, I want to work our way in a little closer into the courtyard. In verses 8 through 20, we see the courtyard. Not the first tent, not the second part of the tent, but the courtyard. One author says this, Sin had created a breach in mankind's relationship with God and brought mortal defilement symbolized vividly in the intermingling of blood and dirt on the priest's garments and body. Yahweh stationed furniture for Aaron and his descendants to ceremonially cleanse and consecrate themselves as they represented Israel in the most fundamental and important component of human existence, worship. What that means is in the courtyard, it was gross. There was blood, and there was wet dirt and mud. And God, in the courtyard, made one specific basin. It was not big. It was not big enough to get in. And it was certainly not big enough that the water in it would remain unstained by the cleansing. But it was significant. The bronze basin of the tabernacle. Uh, later, it's referred to in Solomon's temple as the Molten Sea. That's a cool name. The Molten Sea. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the bronze basin in the tabernacle, or in the temple. But for now, the bronze basin in the tabernacle in the wilderness... Verse 8. That's it. There is few recorded detail about the bronze basin. However, what's most significant about the bronze basin is not what it looked like, how much water was in there, but rather where it was. In the entryway between the tabernacle and the altar. Between the tent and the altar. Can, can you see it? I, I know sometimes we've printed the map of the tabernacle on the handout, but I, I hope you can see it. You walk into the courtyard. There, undeniable, is this altar. There's blood sacrifice. There's dirt on the ground. There's mud. The priests are handling the blood sacrifice. Then you would walk toward the tent. And in front of the tent door, there's a bowl. And that bowl is for cleansing. So you've got, you've got blood all over. 
And you would take that water and you would wash and cleanse yourself. Why? Right? Why? Hadn't, hadn't the blood been spilled? Isn't the mercy seat inside? And this little bit of water is not fooling anybody. Nobody's getting clean physically, much less clean spiritually with this little bowl of water. Now, definitely God tells Solomon to dial it up a little bit. Listen to the molten sea in Solomon's temple. The molten sea in Solomon's temple is seven feet deep. It's 15 feet around and contains 10,000 gallons of water. By the way, when God tells Solomon, tell David to tell Solomon, how to make the temple in First Chronicles 28, one of the things is that there are lily pads hanging off the edge of the basin. And all around the rim of the basin, there are gourds, like a garden. Just to note. Even that, even 10,000 gallons of water, is not going to be enough to keep the priests clean as they constantly offer blood sacrifice. It's definitely not going to be enough to wash them spiritually clean. You can't stand at the basin for a moment and think, all right, this is all I need. Behind you is an altar for blood sacrifice, and ahead of you is a mercy seat. The bronze basin is just reminding you. And I would say that in that light, because listen to what he says in verse 21. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. The altar and the tent, they serve us as a picture of a portal through which Israel would draw near to God. The blood had to be poured on the mercy seat. But the priest who would mediate for the people had to know that he was being provided for by God himself to be a fit priest. Here, here's what I want to say for us practically. We exist today between the altar, between the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our eternal home with God, the Holy of Holies. And we exist here now as what the New Testament calls us priests before God. And what is the ceremonial indication of our cleansing. <laughs> I really appreciate that response. Like the light came on and she said, ooh, baptism. That's correct. That is correct. And just like for the priest, you can't erase the cross and you can't hope to get into heaven without the cross, but you have this moment where you stand in front of a bowl of water and God says, I'll make you acceptable. I will make you clean so you can enter. And this little bit of water is going to remind you that I am making you clean. 
the witnesses who saw this little bit of cleansing, the witnesses who saw the sacrifice, the witnesses who knew the significance of entering into the holy place, confessed the power and the purity of God's holiness, and they must have said with David in Psalm 15, verse 1, O Lord, who can enter into your tent? Only those who God had made the way to enter into his tent. Would you take your Bibles just quickly as I leave this point about washing and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, which you know, you've heard, we're going to be studying through the book of Hebrews after Exodus. Pastor Will spoke last week and we were talking on Tuesday and he said, do you just have this reoccurring temptation to just go and read all of Hebrews at the end of every sermon from Exodus? And a lot of times it's true, and today is one of those. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, this is for us, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, there's an altar behind us, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. So here we stand, about to go in. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, here's, here's our action, draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. There we stand. The sacrifice has been accomplished. Our high priest has made the way for our entrance. So, let's also see ourselves washed clean by the completed work of Christ, the cleansing of Christ, the provision of God to enter into His eternal mercy. And then let me show you lastly, the substitutionary blood sacrifice. It's how the chapter starts, verses 1 through 7. The altar of burnt offering was one of the most visible features in the tabernacle. When you came into the, the, the uh, courtyard through the gate, it was the first thing you saw, right in the middle. It wasn't talk, tucked off into a corner. It's right here. You have to literally walk around it. To approach the function of the altar, it's helpful for us to remember Mount Sinai. Altar sacrifice begins at Sinai even before the temple is built or the tabernacle is constructed. On arriving at Mount Sinai, the Israelites were forbidden from ascending to the mountain. Chapter 19. Mount Sinai was set apart as a holy place. There's a barrier between God and the people. Moses and the elders are eventually permitted to go up, but anyone else would be put to death. Sinai and the tabernacle are so similar that way. All right, let's, let's take a walk back through the last couple chapters. The altar of burnt offering emphasizes the need for atonement, emphasizes the need for sacrifice. You have this altar. Let me say this, just in way of start, because I want to go into the importance of sacrifice. Friend, if you're with me today, and you take a step into the courtyard... It's possible that you might assume it's acceptable to just walk around the sacrifice and go to God. 
And the very geography of the altar says you can't go there unless you go through here. When all the people in Exodus chapter 19 affirmed, God, we have heard your commands. We have received the Ten Commands. We have received the Book of the Covenant and we will do it. In Exodus chapter 19, representatives of Israel crossed the boundary and went partway up the mountain. As they did, they experienced this extraordinary vision. In chapter 24, you remember when they went up and and they tried to explain what they had seen? And here's what they said. Under his feet... As it were, there was a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for cleanness. Chapter 24, verse 10. Not only did they see something of God, His majesty and splendor, but they celebrate their new covenant relationship. Like, God's right by us, and they have this great big feast. Verse 11. Before the people could go up to God on Mount Sinai, they had to offer sacrifice. And before they could offer sacrifice, God says, you need to build an altar here. And if you're going to come to me, something is going to have to die in your place. This is not new. This is not, you don't have to go to Hebrews 10 or to Exodus 38 to see this. The tabernacle is like a small Sinai. The most holy place at the top of the mountain. Only Moses got to go there. Only the representative of the people who had been made acceptable by God was going to be allowed to go there. There's a side of the mountain. Moses and some of the elders go. That's where they see the sapphire like crystal for cleanness. Some people could go there, but only after sacrifice. And then the courtyard, the foot of the mountain, where God told Moses, tell all the people to come right here and then stop. Come right here and then stop. You can come this close, but no closer. Do you remember when Jesus was in Jerusalem? He's on the steps on the east side of of the temple. And a young lawyer comes up to him and the lawyer thinks, oh, I'm going to ask a tough one. This guy's a teacher. I've got a great question. A young lawyer, not in the sense that we think lawyer. Uh, a student of the law. Comes up and he says, what, what do you think is the best, most important part of the law? And Jesus converses with him. And ultimately what Jesus says back to this man, because he answers religious questions well. And Jesus says, I conclude that you're not far away. Wow. He understood the religious requirements of the law. Like a person standing at the bottom of the mountain of the Lord who is told, your understanding has to stop there. You you can't come any closer. With all your true information, you can't come any closer. I mean, imagine the arguments that could be made. I'm a Hebrew. My my parents were Hebrew. I was circumcised in the eighth day. I've I've kept the law. 
I know it inside and out. You should see me on Saturdays. And the answer to that person is, yeah, you can stand right there. But if you don't come through the altar, sacrifice, shed blood, you can't come any closer. And Jesus says to that young student of the law, it sounds to me like you're close to the mountain of the Lord. The problem is there was no Jesus in his answer. There was a lot of accurate information. And maybe for us that closeness is 16 inches between what we know in our heads and what we confess in faith in our hearts. The importance of the altar is undeniable. But did you follow that the last 15 minutes included make yourself clean and make yourself bloody? Did you follow that? The altar? You walk in the courtyard and you get to this box where you have to kill an animal and throw it on the box to be burned as a sacrifice. And you have blood one moment, and then you turn around the next moment, and you're supposed to be washed clean. You know, that's one of the beautiful oxymorons of our Christian confession, isn't it? That we will be washed as white as snow under the fount of blood. And you, you see it right in the tabernacle. You need to cover yourself in a blood sacrifice. And then the next step, you need to understand that I have made you clean by that blood sacrifice. And the gospel is obvious in the tabernacle. Would you see with me? <laughs> I look at the way, the way I chose to lay out these three points. And I got to the conclusion, and I, I have a little note. It's just the word Christ in my conclusion. And I thought, well, let's see. All the beautiful, ornate adorning of the temple. Hmm. <laughs> we are desperate, needy sinners. But we can be clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. We can be covered, plated in the righteousness, sinlessness of Christ. And then I thought, the cleansing ritual, this, this water... Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized, immersed into his death, are also immersed into his life? Now, I'm not going to have a long conversation about how much water is required for cleansing. You know, do we need Solomon's basin so we can immerse? Or is the tabernacle one okay? We'll just sprinkle? But I'm, I'm thankful for the clarity of Solomon's molten sea. It's going to take a lot 
I'm going to have to be all in if I'm going to be cleansed. And that's the reality of my union with Christ. I have to be immersed into Christ if I'm to be clean. And that's not just ceremonial. Death was the price. He is the blood sacrifice for my atonement, isn't he? I can't, I can't walk into the tabernacle and not first see the altar where Christ gives himself as a blood sacrifice for my sin. I, I can't do anything past that first item. I can't go in and look at the table of showbread and go, Whoo, God exists and he's around. And watch a candle lighting up a tent at night and go, good thing God's here. None of that will matter. There's not enough water in the basin if I skip the altar. And if I get to the mercy seat and I don't have any blood to offer, it is just my death, right? It is just eternal death. And all of the tabernacle is is a father putting his hands on our chubby faces and saying, look what was first. And he makes a way for mercy. And it starts with sacrifice. And this, this isn't new, right? It's not like we're going, oh, wow. I didn't realize that he made blood atonement for my sin. Go to the first book. Go to what Moses already wrote. When we first sinned, and he says, who told you that you were naked? And God sends them out of the garden wearing clothes. Leather clothes. I, I hope you've never missed that. The first death came immediately after the first sin. And God made a way for mercy. They should have been annihilated. They should, back to dust. Let's do that again. That would have been fair. It would have been totally fair. And there in the garden, God made a way for mercy. And then the people get into slavery. God brings them out in the wilderness and says, I don't ever want you to forget that the mercy you received will be, be the mercy that I have made the way for. And this altar is going to serve as a reminder that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So before I close, and I, I'm going to close here right now, but before I do, I, I, have, I have to make sure that all of you who have come here to be together understand the absolute necessity for the shed blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When it came to representation, God got to pick who would be a sufficient representative. Who would be his chosen representative? How, how would they serve the rest of the people? 
And we know that before the foundation of the world, God had ordained Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice in the place of sinners. And, and we are surrounded by the impression that I just want to get to the Holy of Holies. I don't, want to, I don't want to end our time together without me saying clearly to all of the Christians and all of the religious people, you can't get there from here unless you first go through the altar. Unless you have first come to the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His blood spilled as a ransom for many. The Father made him to be sin who knew no sin. He was an acceptable sacrifice that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So all the talk about how much gold, all the talk about measurements, all the cubits really pale in any comparison to what all of this means. It means that God, the Father, Creator, and ultimately righteous Judge has made a way. Has made a way to mercy. And the way is Jesus Christ alone. I wonder if you're here today and you would hear, you're not far. I'm going to church. I say certain things and there are other things I don't say. I try to, I try to learn the Bible. I'm, I'm serving. I'm, I'm active. And I wonder if you would hear the tabernacle and you'd say, oh, but I'm, I'm not in either. I'm not far, but I'm, I'm not in. There is nothing applied to my account that would actually let me walk into the holy place and not be consumed. But maybe, and I hope, I hope that you're here and you heard the tabernacle testify, if you have come through the altar and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then you should enter into the very presence of God with full assurance. And maybe you're preaching to yourself... Christian, maybe you're preaching, oh, I'm not very good. I'm not really serving anybody but myself most days. And I'm, I'm not really learning God's instruction the way I should. And I, I am here today, but not a lot. And maybe you're tempted for a moment to say, I don't think I can get into the holies, at least not today. But if you've come through the altar, then even your... Sin and unrighteousness is made spotless under the fountain of blood. That's blessed assurance. That is blessed assurance, isn't it? So I, I hope that as you leave, you know that the only way to God is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Absolutely the only. And I hope that if you have come into the tabernacle and you're standing at the basin of water and you're thinking can I go in there Christian I hope that if you would say behind me is my full confidence in the shed blood of Jesus Christ 
then I hope you are ready and eager like a child to rip open the curtain and walk in and say, Dad, I get to be here with you. Let me pray. Father, I pray that in this room your spirit would do a work which is so diverse and unique. And there are people here who are, they're doubting that they're good enough. Constantly they're Their shortcomings make them feel guilty over and over. Even though they've come through the altar and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, they're standing at the the curtain of the holy place where you are and they feel like they can't go in. Lord, would you please build their faith? So often we believe but call out, please help our unbelief. What a sad thing it is to have ransomed children washed under the blood but not confidently convinced that through our faithful high priest we can enter with full assurance. But then too, there are people in the room who they see this picture of religious life And they know, as Pastor Will shared last week, that there is a mercy seat. There is the presence of God. And there are people who presume that they should be allowed into the presence of God, into heaven. But they're trusting in being Hebrews, or they're trusting in learning your law, or trying to do it better. And they're not right now putting all of their hope on the sacrifice of the altar and trusting in Christ alone. So Lord, I I ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would work and produce maturing in both those situations to the the honor of your name and, and, and the faithful application of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me. Let's sing once more.